0: feels like progress. The Chime credit builder visa credit is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Out of network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. <laughs> <laughs>
1: your host, Andrew Donaldson.
2: This is Heard Tell.
1: welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, when we got congressional questions, this is the guy that's got the answers. He covers Congress for the Independent. He's also an MSNBC contributor, formerly the Washington Post. He moves, he shakes, he gets things done. He knows people. He talks to people, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Our good friend, Eric Garcia. Great to have you back, my friend. Good to be back. Hey, uh, I love what you've written in the independent here, because let's, let's start big picture and then we'll zoom back in for a second. Let's go. People talk about, you know, right now, because we have the congressional handings with January 6th. We just did the gun legislation. We have the Supreme Court stuff with not just abortion, but also a big environmental ruling getting ready to come down the pike. Yeah, um, we have We're a few uh, minutes
0: right now, actually, literally. Yeah.
1: yeah What's West, well, West Virginia versus EPA? It's why well, I'm kind of keeping an eye on it. Uh, things like this, but this all revolves around the Congress and the Senate, but we talk about it usually in political terms and things like that. We don't talk about the mechanics of how Congress actually works. And that's where you start here. When you're covering Congress, we know about the gaggles. We know about meeting people in the rotunda. We know about the committee hearings. Talk just a minute as somebody that's there, the actual machinations of day-to-day business, there's a rhythm and there's a method to this. And that's a part of a lot of these stories that gets left out, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. I think one of the things a lot of people don't recognize is, and I've talked about this in the past, is that the House of Representatives, for better or for worse, has is basically a jalopy. It's basically at this point the other the two sides barely talk to each other at this point. Uh, so as a result, that's why you see a lot of this the legislation getting done on the Senate side, because they recognize that they actually need to pass a bill. So for example, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was done on the Senate side, and the, uh, the gun legislation was most recently passed, was done on the Senate side. And a big reason for that is because of the filibuster. What's interesting, what I've noticed is that ever since January 6th, there, is, there are a lot of hard feelings on the House side. Um, and of course it was revealed last week that multiple members of the House asked for pardons, on the Senate side, the weird thing is, and, and Kirsten Gillibrand has talked about this with uh, with me, is that like, they, for the most part, it's not like anybody's forgiven Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, but for the most part, they're just, they've because of the way the Senate's set up, they've moved on. And they kind of have to work together because there's fewer of them and because there's the filibuster, they had to work together. So one of the other things I think that's important to recognize is that, and so what, I, I wrote this piece about Senator Tom Tillis, is that a lot of times one of the things that benefits is that, one of the, at least on the Senate side, there's a real inclination to negot- not let staff negotiate and let, the, and let the senators negotiate among themselves. Otherwise, things break down. And I think that was really one of the things that allowed for both the, the infrastructure bill and the gun bill to get through was that they kind of didn't let the staff get involved. They kind of just did it, you know, mano a mano.
1: Yeah, and there's one other part to that that we need to touch on before we get into specifics here. You talk about the staff negotiating as opposed to the senators. Um, I know we had our friend Jim Swift on who staffed both the House and the Senate in a previous life before becoming a writer. He's talked about this on the program the yeah. turnover of staff in the house is one of the real driving factors of how the house works because you're running forever election, basically once a year, because it's every two years, the election cycles, yeah. their staff turns over so much Senate, you have Senate staffers that have been there 20, 30 years. Sometimes it's a totally different beast. And when you're talking about effective government, like passing uh, negotiated legislation, the house just has some institution or, or institutional things against them. Whereas the Senate, it's kind of built in to have things work because you got people that are there longer; they're more secure. All that—that's something that you see as a reporter that the general public probably doesn't think of, but it's a huge factor in how these things happen.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. Being a Senate, being—you being, being, know—one of the interesting things about it, what well, that I noticed was that during the January 6th hearings was was the Cassidy Hutchinson um, testimony. What was interesting to me is that I probably know like 10 or 15 different Cassidy Hutchinson's or Cassidy's Hutchinson. I don't know what the plural of that is. Uh, but they're, they're, you know, they're often young. They're often fresh out of college. They're often uh, very, very uh, fresh faced and they're not with a lot of experience. So there's just a lot of staff turnover. And just because of the high metabolism of the, of, of the house, a lot of people get run out very easily. There aren't that many. There are some lifers. Don't get me wrong. There's some people who stay there for a long time, but most times people will usually jump over to the Senate side. Uh, there, there's also just like a, a House office is just smaller to manage. Whereas the Senate, there are plenty of lifers, and there are plenty of there's plenty of people who get things done on the day-to-day basis and who manage their bosses. And then of course, there are some, uh, you know, I I don't think I'm speaking out of term, the the Senate is a lot older than the House. Um, And as a result for some of the members of the Senate who might not be all there all the time? The Senate might, Senate staffers might carry the load a little bit more. Uh, you know, there were talks about this when Strom Thurmond was a senator that his that his that his staff ran things. There were talks about Robert Byrd how when he wasn't there for the most part toward the end uh, from from West Virginia. So there, so, so the Senate's so. It's not more glamorous, I'd say, but there is more of a, I guess you could say, a veneration of Senate staff because these are people who get stuff done on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. Uh, Eric Garcia, fine reporter, joining us. Okay. This leads us to the Tom Tillis piece you wrote, and we've linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the full piece. But, you know, one of our founding principles here is things don't happen in a vacuum. They have it. In a sequence, walk us through who Tom Tillis is, because he's not that well nationally known. Uh, Of course, you and me both have ties to North Carolina, so we know maybe a little bit more than the average bear anyway. But walk us through the sequence, because like you just said, once you get to the Senate and once you're there for a second term, especially because now you got committee assignments and things, you have power, but there's a process to get in there. How did Tom Tillis get to be uh, a player in the U.S. Senate?
0: Yeah, so Tom Tillis. I think he's one of those people who again he doesn't emit a lot of he, he's not on conservative talk radio, or he's not on conservative media as much as like a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley. And he doesn't, and he he as of right now, he's not a chairman or anything of a big committee right now, but he's slowly but surely become one of the more effective Republican senators, and part of that is because he got a start in the Cornelius Mecklenburg area of North Carolina. Uh, for a while, he was involved with like, uh, like in the area of the river, around Lake Norman, which is incidentally where Donald Trump has a, as a, as you know, property. And what happened is he just moved up the ranks in the North Car- in the local politics before getting elected in the North Carolina legislature in 06, I believe. Then in 2010, then what happened is, of course, in 2008, Barack Obama won North Carolina. But in Charlotte Magazine, is there's, there's a great profile of him in Charlotte Magazine from when he was running for Senate. North Carolina Republicans didn't do that badly that year in North Carolina. So there was this feeling that, that maybe they could win. So what Tillis did is he basically left his job at IBM because in North Carolina there's a part-time legislature. And he just basically traveled across the state, recruiting candidates, campaigning for them. And then in 2010, uh, Republicans for the first time in more than a century, take over both houses of the legislature. 2012, his buddy from Charlotte, Pat McCrory, becomes the governor. And really, <clears throat> at that point, you know, because they haven't been in power for so long, they just ramrod through a lot of conservative legislation. That really gives Tillis, the impetus to run for Senate in 2014. And of course he's winning against Kay Hagan. And that was, I think it was the most expensive Senate race at the time. And it was a, it was a blood feud. It was, uh, that was the first Senate race I ever covered. And it was just, it was ugly. It was nasty. Uh, there was a lot of mudslinging until uh, it's narrowly won that race, by I think like only like 45,000 votes. Hagan actually did better than people than the, the, she probably could, than like a lot of other Democrats. But it was just a bad year for Democrats. Tillis, for the first term, he really doesn't stand out that much. But what he does do is he really tries to become somebody who Democrats can do business with. He said in 2016, he says, if they don't do criminal justice reform, I'm not ready for another term. And then the Senate Judiciary Committee, he helps negotiate criminal justice reform with Democrats like Cory Booker. And then of course, what happens is in 2010 2020, Demo- of course, uh, Cal Cunningham uh, runs against him, and of course has that uh, sexting scandal. And Till and cu- Tillis, you could argue he could he probably would have won that seat because Joe Biden just didn't campaign that much in North Carolina. But the other thing you could argue is that he just got lucky. But depending on who you ask, but what ha- but whatever, whatever did happen is since then he's accumulated a lot of trust and respect, uh, enough trust and enough goodwill from Senate leadership. And enough respect from Democrats that he's somebody who they could negotiate with.
1: In other words, you know, we used to just call this stuff politics. Like, hey, he went out and raised for all these other candidates. And now it's his turn. Hey, he's easy to work with on stuff. So he, like, we have, we now have like this new breed of politics where it's so online and it's so party focused and it's so ideologically focused. That he's almost like an old school politician where he just kind of goes and does the job, doesn't he?
0: yeah no, he does the job make no mistake he's a conservative i don't i don't want to say that he's a sure murderer. i just mean
1: mechanically like he, he yeah, does mechanically
0: the like i uh, there are the people who you know uh, to, to your point he's the last of the dying breed i think he because like for example to your point senator rob portman is retiring this year uh he's another another i guess you could say i think the distinction is not and amy walter has discussed this at the cook political report who's like the smartest woman i know in the world uh smartest person I know in the world, probably there are what I call governing Republicans and there are firebrands and Rob Portman and Roy Blunt and Pat Toomey, all of whom are retiring this year, uh, are what I call, and Richard Burr are governing Republicans. They're conservatives, but they care about, you know, landing the plane. Then there are your Ted Cruz's and your Josh Hawley's and your, um, your John Neely Kennedy's uh, who focus mostly on, you know, um, optics. And I think Tillis, one reason why he doesn't earn the ire of Democrats, and one reason why he, why his Democratic challengers don't raise as much money as, like, your Amy McGrath's or your Jamie Harrison's or your John Ossoff or your Raphael Warnock's, is he hasn't put himself out in the forefront as somebody who does that many offensive things to Democrats. And he He's not in Senate leadership for now. So that kind of inoculates him from Democratic outrage. But in the same respect, I think what it does is that because he cares about governing and he cares about actually landing the plane and not just being on, you know, uh, being on, you know, Ben Shapiro's podcast all the time, uh, he he a lot of conservatives don't necessarily trust him. So I, I think that's the real distinction. I actually used to say when North Carolina passed the bathroom bill, that was under Speaker Tim Moore, his successor, I used to say that never would have gone gone to a vote in the General Assembly if he were Speaker, not because he wasn't you know, opposed to LGBTQ rights. He is. But it's because he knew that was bad for business.
1: Yeah. And you said something key there, too, I think, to key in on is with somebody like Tillis, because he's not in leadership, this is there's always been this this group, whatever the makeup of the Senate is, there's always this floating group, you know, gang of four, gang of six, gang of eight, whatever. There's yeah. always this floating group that's not actually in leadership, but they're the ones getting done. There was reporting that Mitch McConnell basically literally told the Democrats, like, Hey, I can't touch this, but go talk to XYZ and Tillis, and Tillis was on that list that McConnell told him, like, no, you go talk to them, they'll hash it out, and then we'll go from there. That's kind of not unusual for the Senate, and he's become that kind of a guy.
0: Right. There are certain people who, because they have good relationships with Democrats, because they come with states states where there are a lot of Democrats, there's this feeling that, well, we can get this done. The the other person who was like that is uh, Senator John Cornyn, who, again, is a very conservative uh, senator, former Attorney General of Texas. And in this case, after the shooting in Uvalde, um, McConnell basically, both of them, both of them I should say sit on judiciary, so that the judiciary committee, so this is their their jurisdiction. McConnell basically recognized, said, he realized he had to do something and he realized if they didn't pass gun legislation now, Then Democrats would try to get rid of the filibuster, and then they do it if they next time they get in the get in office, and then it's game over. So this was basically his way of saying it. He says you can't negotiate with me, but you can negotiate with Cornyn, who's a former whip, and you can negotiate with Tillis, who you've negotiated with the past on infrastructure, and that's how. And then and then basically what happened is, from what I understand, is that um, initially they said Murphy and Chris Murphy, who represents Connecticut and cinema. Uh, they were the two people who negotiated with Cornett. And then Cinema said, we need another Republican. And that's how Tillis came about at being the, the fourth guy on this team. And then, of course, there were 16 other senators, part of a larger group that negotiated that that, yeah. that, 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 that final deal.
1: Yeah, Eric Garcia from the Independent. We're talking the Senate. We're talking Tom Tillis, a great piece. He wrote, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into how that gun legislation actually went through. We're also going to talk about some politics. Uh, anytime you are trying to moderate as a Republican, you're going to run afoul of the Trump camp. Uh, he yep. not only went afoul of it, he kneecapped one of them. We'll get into that in his uh, coded reading of Madison Cawthorn. More with Eric Garcia right after this on Her-tel.
2: Yep.
0: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
1: Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Having a blast talking to our good friend, eric garcia he does great work make sure you're following him uh he writes for the independent msnbc other places from time to time all right buddy we've talked about tom tillis how the senate works we walked through how tom tillis became uh, he's not a shot caller but he talks to all the people before the shots are called i think that's probably a yes. fair way of explaining this uh yeah. let's talk the gun legislation real quick let's just set aside the particulars of it because you know there. A lot of this was kind of shining up stuff that was already existing. There's some argument over yes. what it actually accomplishes, but they passed something, which two months ago, you would have said that would have never happened. How did the mechanics of this legislation get passed?
0: The mechanics of it are really interesting because I think that there was really this feeling, I, I, think, I, think, it, I think it's important to say there are a few things I read about this, it was interesting because I remember when the negotiations began. I I should say, I've been covering, I've been a journalist now for, you know, professionally for eight years. Um, And that means that I've been covering politics in Washington ever since. So I've been covering Washington's response to gun violence for a long time now. And to the point that I'm just kind of like, this is, you know, nothing's gonna happen on guns. And, but the thing that changed, I think, but then, like, I noticed when the negotiations with Cornyn and Tillis and Cinema began and, and, uh, and Murphy, was there was this general feeling of goodwill. And I think there are three things that I would attribute it to. One is that the National Rifle Association is just not as strong as it used to be. Uh, a lot of liberals like to think of the NRA's power as just the money that it gives to candidates. That's not the real thing. It's the NRA's ability to scare the bejesus out of its members and mobilize them that I think is the real power. But since the NRA's had a lot of money troubles and it's kind of gone uh, and it's, you know, tried filing for bankruptcy, that was one thing is that it just couldn't, you know, mobilize the troops. I think the other thing was that Democrats as a whole were unified on this. The last time there was gun legislation uh, for de- uh, in twenty fourteen 2015, 2013, the, uh, four Democrats defected. Now, basically, all Democrats, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, Sinema was one of the negotiators, they were basically unified on it. The same for the House. I think that was a big factor, and there was a trifecta. So you had a president who supported it, you had a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, and basically all they needed was a few Republicans. And then the other thing I think was that there was a genuine trust. I think that, as I said earlier, McConnell knew he needed to pass something. Otherwise, the moment Democrats get a filibuster, proof, like get... 52 or 53 seats and a Democratic majority and a Democratic president, there is going to be an assault weapon ban. There is going to be a raise in the age of 21. So we felt like I need to do this to stave that off and not make it a campaign issue. Uh, and I think that and I think it worked. And I think the last thing was that there had been already a few bipartisan deals. In the past two or three years or so, there was a bipartisan deal on COVID negotiations. There was a bipartisan deal on infrastructure. A lot of the same players who were part of the infrastructure deal were part of of this. So there was generally this feeling that we know how to do this and we can do this. So let's do it. So I I think that's what, what, what led to it.
1: Yeah. And the other interesting thing about this particular piece of gun legislation was the initial people that came out and supported it were all uh, either not up for election or were retiring or moving on yes. or whatever, but they did expand it a little bit. Uh, our progressive friends aren't going to like this. See, so I'll just grab your chairs real hard. This is going to be a rough two minutes, but I just got to lay this out there. Uh, when Manchin and Cinema had all that pressure on them to get rid of the filibuster, they both yes. used the argument, no, the filibuster lets us negotiate things. And they yes. got they got absolutely racked over social media and campaign ads. They got destroyed online for it. They've got some scoreboards going up now with some, with a, some really important stuff. Even for progressives, for moderates, they're they're putting wins on the board. Does that argument get a little fleshing out now? I mean, they're never going to get an apology or anything, but they're actually kind of getting some stuff done here.
0: Well, what I was, what I said about this at the beginning when I, I wrote about this in the, during the negotiations, was I said cinema had the most to gain and the most to lose from this, because if Cornyn and Tillis walked away, then the immediate thing that people the progressives would say was, you see, she doesn't, she her relationships with the Republicans don't even work out that much. Uh, they don't actually get things done. But if it worked. Then she could go back to Democratic voters in Arizona in 2020. She's not up for re-election this year. She's up in re-election in 2024. She could say, "I got an infrastructure bill. I got gun legislation. We didn't need to get rid of the filibuster. So, re-elect me." And I think that she has, she has a case to be made. That's not to say that there aren't going you know, to people, maybe people, particularly Democratic primary voters who aren't happy with, who are still un, not unhappy with her, but. She can make the case. Manchin is, in, of course, in a very different situation. He's in a state where Trump won every county. He has to work with Republicans. Cinema can now say, look, I, I rack up, like, while AOC gets a lot of retweets and, you know, a lot of other people, I actually get things done. You could argue that this gun bill was not everything that they wanted. And in the same way, you could argue that passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill allowed for Build Back Better to die on the vine. But she could very easily say, hey, they, like, I actually do stuff and, and, and it works. So she has an argument to be made.
1: Yeah. And the, the other thing there is, and I, we'll delve into this some other time, the Senate is an exclusive club. There's only 100 of them. It is. And even bipartisan across parties, they like to have a say in who they're working with every day. And I think they're looking at states like Arizona and that absolute dumpster fire of a primary they're getting ready to have. And they're looking at Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin in West Virginia going, you know what, whatever comes after that's going to be worse. Let's let's not burn her on this. There, there's definitely stuff like that. that happens in the U.S. Senate and they they think that way.
0: No question. I mean, I, I think that's very um I, you know, I'll say this about Mitch McConnell, and uh, I can't speak for the rest of them, but I can say this, McConnell is very strategic, and he does not and he also, McConnell, as much as conservatives may hate him for it, <laughs> he remembers 2010 when Sharon Engel blew that race against Harry Reid. And he remembers... Uh, I was living Don- in
1: Vegas at the time. I remember it vividly. That it, Whatever you saw in the national media it was three times worse on the ground. It was bad
0: right uh she was just she was just she was unelectable and and then uh and she blew what should have been you know an easy race and then christine o'donnell blew that race in in 20 in 2010 against chris coons and then and then in 2012 you of course had todd aiken and richard murdoch mcconnell recognizes sometimes where he's just like look it might be better for us to hold off on this and that's not to say he doesn't win he probably would love to see mark kelly lose but he's probably looking at what Mark Brunovich is doing and what Blake Masters is doing in, in, in Arizona. And he's probably like, this is going to be bad and this will be a headache. And I'm sure he probably, even though he's endorsed Herschel Walker, he probably is looking at that with, you know, some sweater under the collar and, 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 it, and it wouldn't surprise me. So I think that he's, I think that it's, again, you're right. It is very, they, these are very strategic people and they do like, and the, you know, it would surprise people how much, for example, Josh Hawley and Kristen Gillibrand work together. It would surprise people how much uh, Chuck Grassley and Elizabeth Warren work together, but they do well, on good government stuff. Uh, Rob Portman gets along really well with Sherrod Brown, A, because they're both Ohioans, but B, they also just care about landing in the plane. So... So to your point, it is a very professional club. And, and and even, you know, another example, a lot of people, as much as people may rag on him, and I've given my fair share of criticism of him, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, you know, in 2018, Rubio didn't campaign for Rick Scott, because he liked working with Bill Nelson, the, the Democrat, who was the senator at the time.
1: Yeah, now head of NASA. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a pro wrestling element to the Senate where they, they do one thing in front of the camera and then they go behind the cameras like, all right, how do we get to the next thing? Uh, yeah. Real quick, uh, senatorial power, of course, is not just in legislating. Uh, it's also in picking candidates. We talked about yes. how Tom Tillis made his bones in politics by picking winners and candidates. That's how you build up a base. That also means when it's time to run somebody, that's the guy to go to. Let's talk yeah. about uh, the soon-to-be former, thank God. Uh, representative from out around Asheville, Madison Cawthorn. Uh, I called it the code red. If you don't understand the reference, because we're starting to get old, my friend. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's uh, yeah. that's a few good men. That's that's they took the you guy know, out. Really- that was the problem. This was a code red. Uh, they, if yes. you go and you understand how politics works, a phone call got made and said, "Okay, we've had enough. Let's get rid of him." Tom Tillis, it turns out, was the catalyst behind that, or more specifically his staff and his office and those deep, deep North Carolina ties. Walk us through that one real quick, because that's an exercise in power when you can take out a sitting congressman uh, just because you've had enough. That's pretty impressive flexing.
0: It is an impressive flex, and I think, so there's the stuff that a lot of people know about Madison Cawthorn that angered people, which was the jokes about the co- him talking to, on that podcast about cocaine and orgies. That was just the last straw. The real thing that heaved off uh, Tillis was last year in redistricting, because every year states had to do redistricting and you know, every every 10 years, I should say, and they had to redraw new maps. Cawthorn was being cute, acting cuter than he was. And he decided to switch districts and run against, uh, and run into district that was gonna be made for a guy by the name of Tim Moore, who's the speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives. That angered a lot of people because Moore was supposed to run for that seat. He's the speaker of the house and that was Tillis' successor. Uh, He also threatened to quote unquote, primary the hell out of anybody who voted for the infrastructure bill. And of course Tillis was one of the negotiators on that bill. And then afterward, he bragged about bringing broadband to Western North Carolina. And that angered Tillis to no end. Though, and I think what also some people worry is that by him trying to run, switch to that district that included the Charlotte area, some people thought that maybe one day he wanted to run for Senate and primary Tillis. But whatever, and so he, it was also maybe him protecting his own territory. But what? But for a lot of reasons, Cawthorne didn't do the job. It's, you know, one thing a lot of people don't recognize. So Cawthorn, of course, ran against a friend of Mark Meadows's uh, when Meadows went to go become White House Chief of Staff. And, that you know, that's fine to be an insurgent, but what happens is afterward, you usually have to rebuild your rela- repair relationships. Cawthorn never did that. He kept on burning bridges so that when he needed his friends, he didn't have any. And I think that's ultimately why it was, you know, one thing after another that finally Tillis and the rest of the North Carolina Republican establishment said, okay, enough. And Tillis said that Phil Berger, who's a state senator, was the one who, you know, kind of motivated him to get behind Chuck Edwards. So that was ultimately the reason was that there was enough infrastructure to take out Cawthorn. So I think a perfect... A lot of people have said, you know, why did uh, Madison Cawthorn lose, but Lauren Boebert did it? Well, for the fact of matter is that Colorado has a Democratic governor and two Democratic senators. So there's not a lot of power within the Republican Party to fundraise and, and neutralize somebody. And in the same respect, Lauren Boebert wasn't talking smack about other, Democrat, about other Republicans; She was talking back about Democrats. So that's ultimately what led to it.
1: Yeah, and let's not pretend here this is still some politics involved. Uh Cawthorn had viable competition in his primary where Bobard and some of these others didn't. If they had one, they might go after, you know. The reason they haven't done this, somebody's like, Why didn't they do that? Marjorie Taylor Green, because they don't have a candidate running with her that could that could win. If they had one, they'd probably do it. Let's be adults. They 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 knew they could beat him, and then that's part of the calculus here as well.
0: There was already blood in the water. He also had multiple law violations for you know bringing a gun to a, trying to bring a gun on a plane and speeding tickets and having his license suspended. Marjorie, there just wasn't there wasn't enough, there wasn't a viable candidate who could run against her in a primary. She had a primary challenger this last year, but it, I mean, this past go around, but, you know, Brian Kemp didn't get behind this challenger. You know, none of the the, the big power brokers in in Georgia got behind it. So it just kind of well, was allowed to wither on the vine. So a, a, as you said, it's all about, can this be done? Do we have a good candidate? Do we have all the things lined up? In Cawthorne's case, it just lined up
1: uh eric garcia you're fantastic we love having you on we appreciate you being a regular on hurt tell till we get you back let folks know where they can follow you you're writing this piece is in the independent we'll make sure to link to it please make sure you read and share it let folks know about your social media and everything you got going on my friend
0: thank you follow me at eric m garcia uh well, on twitter you can follow me on instagram at eric m garcia 14 uh, i of course write for the independent i'm a columnist for msnbc uh, my book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, came out last year through HarperCollins and it it's coming out in paperback August 3rd uh, with a new afterword about the COVID 19 pandemic. So uh, that is coming out in paperback. Uh, and as always, it's always fun being on here
1: yeah and when the paperback comes back i already told you we want to have you on and kind of rehash that because we covered the book when it first came out uh because those are human interest stories i'd love to update some of that so we'll definitely have you on to talk about the book we'll be doing it soon my friend we'll put a link in there for that too all right eric garcia you're the best buddy appreciate your time today sir take care thank you sir welcome back to Her Tell, O oh, Contributors. She's also at the Reason Foundation looking at the Personal Integrity Project and some policy analysis. Jen Sidorova, how are you, ma'am? Glad to have you with us.
2: Good to be here.
1: Hey, thrilled to have you. Okay, uh, you've been doing some writing. Let's start kind of big picture for a second. Everybody understands that pensions is a big problem in America, especially on a federal level. We understand pensioners, and that has a lot of different forms from public pensions, even the Medicare system, things like that. You took an angle on this, though, that on the municipal level, and we know there's a lot of cities that have been crippled with pensions, you actually found an example of some good news for pension. I'm all for some good news. We've had a lot of bad news lately. Talk about Jacksonville and the pension system that you wrote about, because it's really nice to see a well-run government and some good news in this front, isn't it?
2: Yes, definitely. So what we focus in the pension integrity project is the state and local pensions. Uh, so not really like the social, uh, not the social security or anything like that, but the local and state pensions that pay for the public service workers, teachers, firefighters and police officers within the states and municipalities. And so Jacksonville is like is one of the examples of a municipality that um, back in 2017, they turned off their defined benefit pension plan for the new hires. And they put all the new hires into 401k style plan. So all of that sounds kind of a lot, like a lot, uh, all this terminology. But let me try to explain it. Defined benefit plan, the pension plan, is the kind of plan that a lot of public sector workers have, like teachers and police and firefighters, as I've mentioned. And so the way the benefit is calculated is that there is a formula that takes into account the uh, num- number of years that they worked on a, with a particular employer. Um, it takes into the account their salaries and then it's calculated and uh, they kind of get a, a benefit um, each month. So that's how pensions work. And uh, the employer is responsible to provide that pension no matter what. So even if they don't have enough money saved up, they still need to find a way to provide for those pensions. Those pensions are guaranteed by constitutions. Uh, what Jacksonville did, they switched the new hires to 401k style plan. That's more like a, um, we also call a defined contribution plan. Um, that's more similar to what you know workers outside of the public sector have. It's a 401k style plan. And what that means is that it it is dependent on how the markets do. And um, the risk is kind of carried more so by the employee than employer. Um, Yeah. And so um, that's what Jacksonville did. And now uh, we see a lot of positive dynamic for them because for once their credit rating uh, was improved, so they had an upgrade and now they will have low interest rates on all the loans they will take out. So all the money freed up will go towards their public services like, uh, you know, infrastructure, parks, recreation, everything that um, all the public services that their, um, their citizens need.
1: Now, I'm just looking, at, there's a fiscal side and a political side of this. Let's just look at the fiscal side for a second, since you went through the technicalities of this. The numbers are pretty astonishing. $585 million added over $155 million to the pension reserves. Since that charge was put in place, over $715 million has been used to grow Jacksonville economy and invest back like you talked about. That's eye-popping by anybody's standards. Does the public in Jacksonville realize that? I mean, I know we're talking retirement funds and people watch those things, but was there an immediate reaction to people to those kind of numbers? Because even somebody that really doesn't understand the nuts and bolts of that, that's a lot of zeros going on the plus side of the ledger. I got to think people had to be happy about that pretty quickly, yeah?
2: Right. Um, So I do believe there was a lot of coverage of that, uh, both when the reform was taking place. um, And right now I'm not so sure. I don't see as much, of that in the news, um, it's more, it's something more that the public public finance professional would understand rather than the general public, unless they make that sort of connection. Unless the uh, officials go out there and they talk to the press and they highlight. So, and in this particular case, uh, it was actually highlighted in the media. And now that I'm thinking of that, and uh, one of the one of the officials actually mentioned that. You know, the freed up money will go towards roads, bridges, parks, libraries, public health and safety. So it will affect the daily life of those communities. But since you brought up this eye popping number, I have another uh, another significant number to share with you and the total um, and that's the total public pension debt across the country, which right now is pushing 1.5 trillion dollars. And that number is really huge. And that's how much money um, these public pensions lacking. So in a way, this is how much less they have than they should. And kind of to give you an other um, visual of that is that the public pensions right now are funded at roughly 72%. So they only have 72 cents for each dollar saved up for those pensions. Now in 2021, because of the very high interest because of the very high asset returns, uh, that number increased a little bit. It, instead of 72, it, it, it was 80 in 2021. Um, but now we're going to see some negative returns, some negative market asset returns, and it's going to go down. So like that, like if uh, I would say the funded ratio would still hang out around 72, 73. Um, although we had like a, a very good year for asset returns, for market gains. We had a very good year in 2021, but this year will pretty much wipe it out.
1: Yeah, I'm not super great with math, but I know 30-odd percent of 1.5 trillion is a whole lot of money to be hanging in the air on. Uh, Jensen Avera joining us. That's the physical side. You just touched on it because there, this is a ticking bomb type of problem. Let's talk about the political side of this. Pensions are one of those, in a lot of places, especially major U.S. cities, they're almost sacked or saying people will not touch these. They don't want to try to reform them. What was the political environment in Jacksonville that they actually not only reformed it, but reformed it in a really productive way that only five years? That's a pretty fast physical return on something like this. Talk about the political calculation where they actually got this done when so many municipalities, you can't even bring this up, let alone do actual reform on it.
2: Right, so when we're talking about public pension reform, it does not necessarily have to be as drastic as what Jacksonville did you don't necessarily have to close out defined benefit plan. In some defined benefit plans in this country are actually fully funded, so the goal of pension reform is mainly to bring the uh, pension plan to the state where it's not impacting you know um, the public services it's not dragging the state or the municipality down to the point when they are having a downgrade. of their risk downgrade. And it's actually just when whenever the pension reform is all about making a sustainable plan that will make sure that those promises to retirees, promises to those teachers, police officers, and firefighters are actually fulfilled. Um, And it's really the goal is to make those pension plans solvent to put them down, you know, uh, the fiscal solvency path. Um, It's not really the point is not really to shut them down at all. And um, another interesting example of this pension plan. um, Not this particular pension plan, but another successful transition from defined benefit to defined contribution was in Alaska, Uh, the reform that happened in 2006. Um, where they also put all the new hires into defined contribution plan. It's been like, it's been a while since that reform. And I recently published a working paper that looks at the retention outcomes uh, for the workers, retention outcomes for the teachers. And we actually, what we see is that um, retention actually slightly improves for workers who were hired uh, at the defined contribution for the defined contribution plan.
1: Yeah. Let's ask you this then. Uh, Jacksonville, of course, is in Florida. That's a fast-growing state. There's no state taxes. There's obviously some local things that went into this. So when you look at the example of Jacksonville, and like you said, that is kind of a drastic example. What is scalable and what isn't scalable from this example? Do you think, as you look, like you said, the rest of the country, this is a $1.5 trillion problem. Almost every municipality has a pension issue of some sort and manner. What is scalable? What isn't going to be scalable? As we look at the rest of the country, do you think?
2: I think uh, one priority that I see, um, one kind of sticking point that I see for a lot of plans, is their assumption, um, uh, their their assumed rate of returns. The assumed rate of return is the assumption that they make when calculating um, kind of how much money they're taking in. When calculating that, uh, the assumed rate of return helps them calculate their unfunded, their funded ratios, their unfunded liabilities. And it's a very important measure because this is how much money they think uh, their assets are going to return every year. And so right now, uh, the assumption on average is 7%. So they believe that uh, every year their their portfolio is will return 7%. And um, if you, you know, if you have at all looked at your 401k and and then you will see that this assumption is a very high one and it's a little bit unrealistic i would say even a more realistic goal would be all the way to six percent and some plans actually like some plans like new york are actually doing this so this is something that definitely can be done and it's also a very positive improvement for the plan in the sense that they will just set more realistic goals for themselves and uh they're more likely to be back on solvency track, back to being fully funded and um, to fulfill the promises to the retirees.
1: All We're talking to Jen Sidorova. Uh, She's with Young Voices and the Reason Foundation doing some excellent work on public policy when it comes to pension. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rest of the country, a whole lot of problems. Like she said, 1500000000000 trillion. She's got some writing and some examples of what to do about that, who's in trouble, who's not. Talking public pensions, one of those things folks don't like to talk about until it's a problem uh, with our friend Jen. Right back after her tell, right after this Ah, welcome back to Hurt Talking about one of them real complex subjects, but the thing is it affects just about everybody in one way or the other, uh, public policy when it comes to pensions, our friend Jen uh, Siderova. Uh, the reason this affects everybody, and you touched on it lightly, but let's, let's just make sure we enunciate it clearly for everybody. The opposite of what you cover in Jacksonville is true. They made back money. They fixed their problems. That was more money for roses, roads and bridges and firefighters and cops and teachers and whatever else. But we've seen in municipalities the reverse, though, when they don't handle their pension fund, the pension fund really becomes an albatross. And then things like teachers and firefighters and roads and playgrounds and all that other stuff, that's what starts suffering, because these pension plans can absolutely eat up a city budget for decades to come if they're not properly managed, can't they?
2: Right. So I think a couple of examples of uh, really significant, you know, kind of a a fallout that was brought up from mismanaged pensions was Detroit a couple of years ago and then Puerto Rico. So um, both, both jurisdictions um, had to undergo significant fiscal changes because uh, their pensions. And this is something that, you know, as pension integrity project this pension reform. we're trying to prevent uh you never want to go to this point of almost no return when you have to at that point make significant drastic changes a lot of pensions are in the state where um you know with a little bit of tuning defined benefit plan could work and uh, this is something that just needs to be taken care of right now it's it's a priority um and although you know most policymakers are not going to be Here, when those pensions, you know, mature, like thirty years from now, when you know the bill will come due, it is still like decisions that I made right now are extremely important. And another thing, the reason that why I am bringing this up is because we've seen a recent trend that um, that in a lot of those uh, state pensions, um, what happened was that. the uh, you know the political goals like the prioritizing green, environmentally friendly, and um, you know social justice goals, um, those sort of investments. So um, has has been taking place. Examples of that would be like divesting from a gun manufacturer or divesting from an oil producing company, uh, and instead investing into ESGs. And so this was the, this is the trend that's happening right now, and it's quite scary in a way that. Uh, when it comes to, you know, those pensions that you owe to, um, that you owe and you have to pay, what you really should be chasing is kind of sustainable, solid returns and you should be investing into assets that are very likely that are trusted assets and they are very likely to bring you a stable return and not really gamble with public pension money. So that's just another thing that we've seen recently and I wanted to highlight.
1: Yeah. And I think you hit something important on the head there, too, is, you know, this is a data heavy thing. This is kind of a wonky issue, but it affects very normal everyday people, even people that are non political, because everybody wants to have some kind of a retirement. Um, And this thing projects out 20 or 30 years over the course of a worker's lifetime. So it's kind of hard for people to get their heads around. As you've wrote about this, as you studied it at the Reason Foundation and other places, Do we need to change how we discuss this in the political commentary and on our social media and stuff? The way we've discussed this over the last 20, 30 years doesn't seem like it's a real productive way. Do you think there's a better way to discuss this without maybe getting into all the nomenclature, which kind of loses people, and just talk to them on a human Mm -hmm. level of like, hey, this not only makes your retirement better, it makes our cities better. It gives more stuff to our kids for the next generation. It sets the next generation up for success. Do we need to change our nomenclature, how we talk about this issue?
2: Yeah, actually, a couple of years ago, I wrote that op-ed, One to Market Watch, and it talks about why pensions, pension issue is a millennial issue as well, why millennials should care about pension debt. It's precisely because of that, because the money that otherwise could be spent on public services is uh, is going towards paying, you know, to the employees who stopped working 10 or 20 years ago which is kind of bringing, bringing up the issue of intergeneration intergenerational fairness. And it's also like in Jacksonville, it's simply that you know, you're getting a lower credit score. And like any one of us, like once our credit score, if it goes down, we're gonna get billed with high interest rates. And if we have a very high credit score, we get low interest rates. It's like as simple as that. So you can even bring this into this human level um, and translate it into these basic issues that we have to deal with um, in our daily lives to explain this issue. And that's what I'm trying to do as part of uh, the Pension Integrity Project and as part of the invoices.
1: Yeah, basically, if you're paying taxes, you're funding a public pension somewhere, somehow, probably a bunch of them is kind of the way to think of it. Uh, Jen Sidorova joining us. Um, We appreciate your time. This is one of those complicated issues, but you explain it really well, so even I could understand it, and I appreciate that. I know you're writing at Reason. You've got a list of writing credits that anybody would be jealous of. I know I am looking through it. Let people know where you are on your social media until we get you back on again in the future, how they can follow you and keep up with what you have going on.
2: Definitely. You can find me on most social media and my handle is the same. It's Jen underscore Sedarova. So I'm pretty easy to find. And you can just always Google my name and find my reason profile, your invoices profile and connect me with me that way.
1: Yep. She's got a lot of writing credits. She's doing more media and we were lucky enough to get her here on her tell. And we hope to have you back again soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Anytime.
1: Thank you. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you.